It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. As we approach the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the war is locked in an ongoing stalemate. This time last year, hopes were high in Ukraine that its military could press home the advantage it had gained that autumn. That hasn't happened, and the front line has barely moved. With a war in Europe, and now another raging in the Middle East, the world has rarely looked so unstable. People are comparing it to the 1930s and the run-up to the Second World War. Given all the uncertainty, questions are being raised here in Britain about whether we'd even be ready to fight a war. We are, in this country, absolutely not ready. Our, our military is a shadow of itself. Now, against all the odds, though, is the time to start talking, thinking the unthinkable and really having to think quite carefully about conscription if we're to deliver the, mon- uh, the numbers needed. What would a future war look like? Would we need conscription? And how much could technology help us to win? What have we learnt from the experiences of Ukraine? We had so many questions, so we decided to put them to one of the country's leading experts in the study of war. Today, how Ukraine has changed the way wars are fought. My name's Lawrence Friedman. I'm an emeritus professor of war studies at King's College London, which means I'm retired. I write books on contemporary military history, international issues, and I have a substack called Commentus Freed with My Son, which is essential reading. <laughs> I think a lot of people would agree. And you also sometimes write for The Times. I do. And we're speaking to you today as somebody who is an expert, really, on war. And not just any one war, like Ukraine, which you know we're coming up to the second anniversary of, but standing back and looking at the lessons that survive from war to war, I suppose. Is that something 
we in this country should be very aware of at the moment. We've had a few sort of alarming headlines recently. We've had warnings here from the head of the army about the potential for conscription. In light of that, should we be more worried about the state of our own defence? American generals have been briefing for a while that the UK is no longer a a top-level fighting force. I mean, how much trouble are we in? Britain enjoys a legacy leadership role on the world stage, but it's one that's looking increasingly shaky, with a damning report by MPs calling into doubt the UK's readiness for war. I think we shouldn't overstate the problems, but they're certainly serious. And we've got particular difficulties because we have been pretty generous, I think rightly so, to Ukraine. But the cupboard's bare in some ways, and our industrial production has really not stepped up to cope. So we're falling behind in that sense, though we've committed quite a lot of money forward in terms of improving defence capabilities. So there's always a a sort of a, a point between complete panic and utter complacency where are we on that that you need to find i think we're somewhere in the middle it would be foolish to be complacent because even if the uk is not going to be invaded which is pretty unlikely we are committed through nato to the defense of, of the baltic countries to poland to a number of countries bordering russia which have reason to be concerned so though i think again it's unlikely One of the reasons it's unlikely is because NATO prepares itself. And if NATO doesn't prepare itself, and we're part of that, then unfortunately these things become more likely. And Russia is highly militarized now. It's a war economy, essentially. Now, the the Russians have taken quite a battering over the last couple of years, so I'm not sure they're in a fit state to fight yet another war. And of course, there's the nuclear issue, which overhangs everything else. But it's a tense time, so it's not surprising that people get anxious. You've recently written about the lessons we can learn from the ongoing war in Ukraine and what it teaches us about the wars of the future, which I imagine lots of people around Europe who are getting quite anxious now will be reading very carefully. You began writing about it, though, by looking not at the future or even the current war, but actually at the past. So just take us back and tell us a little bit about Ivan Stanislavovich Bloch. He was a, a banker who made it his business to study war. He was quite an influential figure. I mean, he wasn't just a sort of a a maverick with a bee in his bonnet. Where and when was this? This was the end of the the 19th century. And he had an influence with the Tsar of Russia, for example. And he was favoured by those who thought war was a very bad idea because he explained why war could be a very bad idea. He wasn't right on everything, but he's famous for having pointed out that the possibility of trench warfare at a time when the general staffs of Europe were talking about grand defensives and wars being over quickly with decisive battles and so on. Mm. He he was sceptical. So I appreciate him because unlike most others who write about the future of war, who are always thinking of some clever technology that's going to win in, in, in a matter of minutes, he forecast a long war, and in that he was right. He thought that the people of Europe would rise up against the long war, and, and they didn't. Eventually they did in Russia, but that took a while. He's a rare writer that realises that if things don't go right at the start of a war, then you're likely to get stuck. And that, sadly, was the lesson of the First World War. I'm nervous about talking about lessons too much because wars aren't sort of 
run as great educational experiences. No. There are questions that they pose. Wars are still reasonably rare events, and they take place in different contexts, different geographies, and so on. So what you think you've learned from one may not always pass on to another. But in this case, he was not working on the basis of what had happened in past wars so much as just looking at the way that capabilities were developing, the machine gun and artillery and so on, that would make it very difficult to succeed with some of the offensives that the general staffs were planning. So he was predicting you'd end up with a long, protracted trench war, really, where... So the spade would be as important as the rifle. <laughs> wow, Yeah. A lot of digging, a lot, a lot of, of dirt, digging, a, lot a, of a lot of misery. Yeah. Whereas the perceived wisdom was that you'd have a big, flashy offensive and it would be over. Well, I think the, the, the thing was, if you're told to plan for a war, politicians don't want to be told, well, it's going to take five years. Mm. They want to be told it's going to be over by Christmas. And that was the expectation on all sides in the summer of 1914. And that's what they planned for, a belief that with sufficient will and elan and dash, that the, the, the offensive would crash through defences. It almost happened, but didn't quite. And when it doesn't quite, then you get stuck, as Russia found in, in Ukraine, in a protracted conflict. I was going to say, it does sound very much like a prediction of exactly what played yeah. out two years ago in Ukraine when Russia invaded. Is Bloch actually a very relevant thinker on, on war now? Well, he... It's dated. <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't read it to find out about drones and artificial intelligence. It captures one perspective of the time. So it's interesting to a historian. I wrote a book a few years ago about the history of the future of war, about how people had talked about it. And Bloch stands out. Other thing, you know, figures of the same time, like H.G. Wells, also seems pretty prescient on a number of things. The atom bomb is called the atom bomb because of H.G. Wells. He wrote mm. a about it essentially in 1913, long before it happened. It didn't happen in the way he imagined, but it got people thinking about possibilities. So I think that's the importance of, of, of the figures from that time. The late 19th century, early 20th, people sensed that something might be up, and therefore there was a, a lot of writing about what a future war might look like, a, a lot of it for the popular publications. So looking at Ukraine today... In a way, we have got a conflict which is exactly the sort that he predicted. Mm. It wasn't over in a quick flash. You've got this very long trench warfare, really, mm. on the front line, very much like it was in, in the last two world wars. Just talk us through where we've got to with Ukraine, because, you know, over the past year, there were lots of headlines about big offensives on both sides, spring offensives that got delayed and delayed, and then on the Russian side, a big sort of counteroffensive. How did they play out? What went wrong with them? The summer counteroffensive in Ukraine is drawing to a close without making the breakthroughs so many had hoped for. It was an ambitious plan. After months of intense and costly fighting, Ukraine succeeded in making some gains, but slowly and painfully. I think what happened with both offensives is that it confirmed that in this war the defence is stronger than the offence. There's high visibility, uh, there's minefields, there's fortifications, there's anti-tank weapons. And if you're in the open, you become very vulnerable very quickly. And that's how it's proved for both. The two offensives are quite different in how they were fought. The Russians just have just thrown mass, they've just thrown people, largely against cities they were trying to take, which by the time, if they do take them, they're reduced to rubble. 
and have enormous costs mm. in the process. They're very attritional for both sides, but particularly for, for the Russians. You get a sense that they're almost exhausting themselves. Again, they may make progress because the Ukrainian fighters are pretty exhausted as well. And then the Ukrainians wanted to do something a bit cleverer. They wanted manoeuvre. They wanted to sort of get round the Russian lines, but they couldn't find a way through. They adapted quite quickly. So they didn't just sort of press on regardless. They changed their tactics, moved to more small group operations, which they understand better. But that meant they they didn't make any great um, gains of territory. Mm. It was quite marginal stuff. Both sides, I think, were frustrated by their operations last year. What else was going on? So we, we have to note that there's been a strange naval battle going on in which Ukraine, which doesn't really have a navy, keeps on knocking out Russian ships so it can get its grain out of the Black Sea. The footage is grainy and dark. Then the target comes into view. Russia's Olenengorsky Gornyak amphibious assault ship. An unmanned attack drone approaches its target. 450 kilograms of TNT detonates and the feed cuts out. And then, of course, there's been these attacks on cities. The Russians keep on trying to knock out infrastructure. This is more Second World War than First World War, in a way, trying to knock out infrastructure. Ukrainians have started to retaliate, going for oil facilities and, and so on. A barrage of rockets hitting an oil depot in Russia, not far from the Ukrainian border, followed by two helicopters. Russia claims Ukraine is to blame for what would be a first... There's there's a lot more going on than just the battle uh, of the front lines, but the front lines at the moment are not moving very much. What's the sort of the path to victory for for either side now? Very unclear. This could go on for a while. I think people expect wars like this to end with uh, suddenly one side has a big offensive which does succeed, does break through, and the opposing army is in disarray. That's how the First World War ended. And it might happen in this case. As likely, I think, is a growing sense of futility, probably more on the Russian side than the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, I think, in the end, don't feel they've got much choice. But Russia does have a choice. Putin started this war. He didn't have to. uh, And it's gone badly. And I think if... Months go by, and there's still no more progress in the land campaign. The attacks on oil depots, the attacks on Crimea, all of these things, I think, bother the Russian leadership. So my guess is it may be, at some point, a sense of futility, which may produce proposals for negotiations and so on. But even then, it's going to be very difficult to see a way through, because in the end, Russia wants to maintain control of territory it's taken, and Ukraine wants it back, and it's a pretty zero-sum game, as they say. Coming up, how has the use of cutting-edge technology in Ukraine changed the way that wars of the future will be fought? That's in just a moment.
This weekend, Time subscribers can catch the latest episode of Inside the Newsroom. It's our new behind-the-scenes series on Apple Podcasts, just for subscribers, on the Stories of Our Times feed. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash bonus podcasts to find out more. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Lawrence, you've been looking at the war in Ukraine and what lessons, I suppose, from it will endure. Standing back, what have the last two years taught us? You know, what's changed about the way that war is fought? We've talked a bit about the history that yeah. has survived, but what, what are the differences? I think the thing that the people inevitably are going to take away from this is drones. Mm. Everybody expected drones would be important at the start of the war, and they were. But these were quite expensive, highly capable vehicles. What's been remarkable is the way that cheap commercial drones have been reconfigured for operations in a disposable sort of way. These are now kamikaze kamikaze drones. drones. You don't mind using them. Well, you expect to use them, but they also could give you intelligence about what's going on on the battlefield and what it's reminded us of is the importance of mass. United Tell us what you mean by that. Well, the United States, when it's thinking about conflict, is a very rich country, and it can produce quite a lot of very capable, precise weapons, and has thought about how it would conduct war in a pretty high-technology sort of way. When you get two large armies fighting each other, but who are not as rich as the United States, then... It's not going to be fought with small numbers of very capable systems. You need the numbers. This is a very long front line. So that's why all these small disposable drones have become so important. You need mass. You need large numbers. And I think that's also true with artillery pieces, with air defences, and so on. 
And I think that, for both sides, is where the problems come. And certainly, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, if you're looking for what the UK needs to do in the future, it doesn't need mass in terms of conscription. It needs to, but it does need the ordinance. Mm. So that's a pretty sobering lesson to come out, which is being learned pretty slowly. But the drones are inspiring in that you started the war with a very expensive version and suddenly you realise that even during the course of a war you can find sort of cheaper, high-tech versions, but the ones that you don't mind. Well, of course, one of the things about long wars, as opposed to the quick, short, dramatic wars that writers about the future of war tend to love, is that this is when you innovate, this is Mm. when you can experiment, when you can try things out. And the Ukrainians in particular, I mean, both sides uh, have been innovative, but the Ukrainians, I think, probably more so Certainly at the moment, there's a lot of grumbling on the Russian side. One year ago, there were only seven manufacturers making drones in Ukraine. Today, there are at least 80. Across the country, factories and workshops are springing up, manufacturing, forging, even 3D printing drones. The current generation of Ukrainian drones is really very capable and causing them a lot of problems. So drones are likely to be a feature that we see drones, in Drones, I think, almost certainly yeah. will be a feature. There's also naval drones. The Well, I was going to say, in terms of the Navy, you know, with these drones, as you've said, you know, they're cheap, they're expendable, they're very effective, but also, you know, you don't lose a soldier or a sailor operating them. They're mm. unmanned, they go off on their own. Even if they're lost, it's a cheap bit of kit that's gone. It's not the end of the world. But they can take out, they have the ability to blow up, as we've seen, Russian warships, you know, which is devastating to the Russian side in terms of cost and in terms of lives lost. It was one of the most brazen and most successful operations by Ukraine's military intelligence service. Sea drones attacking and the Ukrainians say sinking a Russian warship inside occupied Crimea. Having seen that, how will that change the way in any future war we think about how we use the Navy, which suddenly feels like it's a sitting target, or the Air Force, where suddenly you have these drones doing the same kind of job, you know, without risking people. How much will it change the way we use the military? I think it does change. Obviously, if you're having troubles recruiting people, it all seems like a good idea. There's certain things you can't do with unmanned systems. And if you're going to have submarines and you're going to have uh, long-range aircraft and so on, you're going to still need the pilots there it's useful to have the people in in the cockpit, as it were. But certainly, we're going to see more of it. There's always this question about the vulnerability of very large and expensive systems, like warships, like even tanks or aircraft, to very simple systems. And it, it, it's always an issue. You can see a sort of almost a d- democratization of military power here. Hmm. The capabilities that would only have been available to the major powers are now quite widely available. And you can add to that, you know, the mobile phone, smartphone. You've got capabilities of the smartphone, many of which were developed initially for military use, including GPS, instant communications, Google Earth, or whatever you're talking about, which means that people now have got far more sight of what's going on in a battle battlefield, battle area, can talk to each other much more quickly to get operations going, know exactly where they are. And so all of these things is just everyday civilian technology. Yeah. So although one tends to look at the high end 
of new incoming technologies like artificial intelligence and so on, which will eventually also come through to these sort of ordinary civilian uses. It's the easy capabilities that can be cobbled together without too much difficulty, which now have the added value of precision and accuracy that can come from quite much less demanding technologies than used to be the case in the past. One reason why it makes contemporary conflict much more dangerous. In terms of the lessons that will endure, you know, you mentioned drones. You also mentioned briefly their AI. Mm. Tell us about that. How have we seen it working in Ukraine and how, how will it be used in the future? The difficulty with AI is it's many things. It's not a single product, as it were. What you're really talking about is being able to hand over to machines some sorts of decisions that you might have had to make yourself or more often wait for options to be generated by systems that can just interrogate large amounts of data very quickly and will come up with options that you might not otherwise thought about, or this is just this is the optimum thing to do. The best example is air defence. So if you go back to the Battle of Britain, the key thing about the Battle of Britain from fighter command's point of view was a system of radars and, and, and observers who fed in information to fighter command about incoming forces. That allowed them to work out what was at risk whether they might be intercepted and which squadrons, Spitfires or Hurricanes or whatever, were best placed to intercept them. That's essentially what has to be done with any air defence system now, except it has to be done in a matter of seconds. And humans just can't do that that quickly. So the Israeli Iron Dome system has the ability when, when missiles come in, and missiles are often coming in, they can work out whether it's going to be hitting something important or was likely to miss its target and land in a field somewhere, and what which interceptor has to be used to deal with it. The Ukrainians are now operating a similar sort of system around Kyiv, using the Patriot Air Defence missiles, but they have a radar with them, which allows them to use all sorts of air defence systems. That's where the machines can really make a difference. The computing power can really make a difference because you just don't have the time mm. to make considered decisions. It's an aid to decision-making. Occasionally, it can make the decisions. People don't like the idea of the machines deciding who to kill. And at the moment, policy is machines should not make those sort of decisions. Humans must always be there. But the humans may not have very much time to make up their minds. Is there a danger, though, that that kind of human judgment gets written out of the equation because the AI will be so fast? You know, you can't there really is keep up a, with it. There is a danger. Go back to movies, one of the first movies that made this sort of point was War Game uh, in the 1980s, or was it 90s, maybe 90s? No, it was 80s because Ronald Reagan was influenced by it, <laughs> which was the first really to warn about the possibilities of cyber attack. But the starting point of that story is because the people in charge of the American deterrent didn't think that the humans in charge of the American ICBMs would take the, the proper decision and try to write humans out of the equation. And of course that created the plot and, uh, and almost led to disaster if the brilliant scientist hadn't got everybody out of it. Hello, General Barringer, Stephen Falcon. Mr. Falcon, you picked a hell of a day for a visit. Uh, uh, General, 
what you see on these screens up here is a fantasy, a computer-enhanced hallucination. Those blips are not real missiles, they're phantoms. Jack, there's nothing to indicate a simulation at all. Everything's working perfectly. But does it make any sense? Does what make any Many lessons to be learnt from fiction and films, it turns out, for the future of warfare. Absolutely. No, they're, they're very influential and, and should never be underestimated. They do make a difference. Having looked at all of this and having watched the Ukraine war so closely for two years, if you were asked tomorrow to walk into the MOD and advise, advise the, the Secretary of Defence on what we as a country should be doing to prepare for what might be coming, what are the lessons you would you'd want to, to pass on? Oh, I'd, I'd say concentrate on the basics. There's no point in having the, the, the best kit in the world if you don't have many people to use it. Even with your high-end kit, your high-end equipment, don't try to go for the very best. Keep it affordable and straightforward, unlikely to be delivered on time, none of which has really happened with the UK too often. Step up recruitment. You don't need conscription. We don't, just don't need those sort of numbers. But you've got to make military service more attractive. And if there's ways of encouraging people to spend time in the reserves and so on, we need to build up our reserves. And just make sure you've got the ordinance. Make sure you, if you are called upon to fight, you don't have to stop because you've run out of ammunition in a day and a half. I think they're the basics that you need to sort out. If you sorted out some of those things, you can do pretty well. Our armed forces are, are still very capable, very well-trained, very committed. I, I wouldn't want to play them down. Uh, and it's not that they've been wholly starved of money, but the money that's been allocated in their direction hasn't always been very well spent. And you know, there's money coming through now. It has to be pretty carefully spent and, uh, and prioritised. But I don't have to start training now. It might do you a lot of good, but, it <laughs> but I, I don't. I don't think the, the the country expects it quite yet. Thank God for that. <laughs> You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of the Times and the Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sir Lawrence Friedman. Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London. If you're interested in more of our coverage of Ukraine, do listen back to last week's episode with Anthony Lloyd, our war correspondent, on the conscription of Ukrainian men and the problems it's causing. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producers were James Shield and Fiona Leach. And sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.